Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hi, everyone. Happy Friday. It is April 21st. Hope you're very well. We've been on the road a little bit lately. We were back this week playing catch up. And so we are just going to dive right into a couple of news stories this week. Hope you enjoy them. Machine learning models like OpenAI's GPT-4 are all the rage, but a startup in Melbourne, Australia is looking into a new way of computing that it thinks could eventually be even more powerful. The reason, says the outfit, is that unlike machine learning models that attempt to mimic the way the human brain works, this startup is actually developing brain-machine technologies, or organoid intelligence. Why bother? For two reasons primarily, it says. First, biological neural networks use very little power compared with machine learning models. Second, biological neural networks can self-organize, allowing them to solve problems even with limited context, whereas machine learning systems have a seemingly endless appetite for context. TechCrunch wrote about the story called Cortical Labs earlier this week when it announced a $10 million round of funding from Blackbird Ventures and the CIA's venture arm NQTEL, among others. How it works, broadly speaking, is that it uses clusters of lab-cultivated neurons from human stem cells to form what it calls a dish brain that is then hooked up to hard silicon. The human stem cells are somewhat of a newer development after first using embryonic mouse brains, which, ugh. We talked with Cortical Lab's founder and CEO, Han Wen Chong, this week from Singapore, where he was visiting to learn more. So what we do is we just extract the whole organism and we remove the brain. And the brain is encapsulated in a sheath called the meninges, right? So I don't want to start to use food analogies, but you know, this is what we usually do in medicine is that you can imagine like a tiny grape and you're peeling the skin off the tiny grape. That's what we do to remove the meninges. And then we take this, I guess, exposed mini brain and we put it in a solution with a protein called trypsin that, you know, we shake it around and it causes the brain to lose its structure and the neurons to what we call disassociate. So okay. they, they become free-floating neurons. Later, cortical labs turned instead to induced pluripotent stem cells, which are derived from skin or blood cells that have been reprogrammed back into an embryonic-like pluripotent state that enables the development of an unlimited source of any type of human cell needed for therapeutic purposes. But it wasn't a no-brainer, no pun intended. The big question was, were they going to work as well as the mouse neurons, which were equivalent to a ready-made can of soup? There are many different types of brain cells, right? There's the neurons, which are the computational part, but it also has what's called glia, which are the supporting cells. They are the ones that replenish the nutrients, remove the waste. And you know, there's a huge area of research at the moment about these glia, right? How do they help us in sleep and keep us in tip-top shape? So you need these supporting cells. But the question is, what is the ratio of neurons to glia? Chong says they were able to find the right ratio, and they proved it in one gimmicky effort that managed to attract the attention of numerous outlets last fall when Cortical said it had taught a dish of living brain cells to play the 1970s arcade game Pong. We talked with Chong a bit about that specific choice earlier this week. We needed something that had a cultural significance. You know, Pong mm -hmm. being the first video game has that sort of clout, and also 
it has to be easily understood. You could just watch the game and go, yep, I understand the objective of the game and what the player or agent has to do in order to win. According to the company, around 800,000 cells linked to a computer gradually learn to sense the position of the game's electronic ball and to control a virtual paddle after receiving much-needed motivation in the form of electrical stimulation. If the cells got it right, they received a burst of electrical activity. When they got it wrong, they were confronted with a stream of white noise, which, if you're a brain cell, you apparently like a lot less. The question is what's been happening ever since and what Cortical Labs aspires to do, including now that it has raised a substantial amount of funding. Given that Chong has a medical degree from the University of Melbourne and has worked as a researcher at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, it's no surprise that one direction in which the company wants to move centers on testing new drugs and therapies. They're starting with some low-hanging fruit, namely alcohol. Chong explained it this way. The one that we're testing out at the moment is using ethanol, right? Because that's the one that we all know what the side effects are like. If you take too much of it, I'm pretty sure most people would stop being able to play Pong. So mm-hmm. we're, we're doing those experiments in-house to show that if we just drop enough ethanol into these cells, they'd get a little bit drunk and wouldn't be able to play. So that's, I guess, the first step for us. But, you know, ho- hopefully we can do a lot more other compounds uh, going forward. Of course, like many founders, Chang is highly optimistic about what could follow, including personalized medicine. Imagine, for example, that cortical could turn your skin cells into another kind of human stem cell and, in vitro, create a drug cocktail that works specifically for you and you only. As with many ambitious startups, there are also ripple effects to be considered. There aren't regulations in place for a company mass-producing computer chips with tiny human brains in them. In order to get the number of cells needed, Cortical Lab also needs a way of producing the cells quickly or rounding up a whole lot of willing participants who are hopefully adults. Chang says he recognizes the challenges and is pretty candid that the outfit is very far from the day it might commercially develop a system that will enable in vitro cognitive testing for others in the life sciences industry. He also readily acknowledges there are ethical issues to be thought through. On the upside, he says, Cortical Labs is entering into what is, quote, absolutely blue ocean green field technology. And hey, if it can help computers become more intelligent by changing the way that they learn, you can imagine it will cause quite a stir in the coming years. Andy Owen, CEO of Miller Knoll, which makes high-end furniture under the brands Herman Miller, Knoll, and Design Within Reach, was trying to explain over Zoom why her employees should focus on landing a big deal rather than mourning the fact that their bonuses had been taken away. I had an old boss who said to me one time, you can visit Pity City, but you can't live there. So people, leave Pity City. Let's get it done. Get the damn $26 million. Spend your time and your effort thinking about the $26 million we need and not thinking about what you're going to do if we don't get a bonus. All right? Let's get it done. Thank you. Have a great day. Owen, whose bonus last year was $4 million, later apologized, but the clip quickly went viral. In an article in today's Wall Street Journal, authors Vanessa Fermans and Joseph Pisani portray Owen as yet another example of the challenges CEOs face in today's hybrid workplace. 
Although a strong case can be made that Owen was uniquely tone-deaf, many chief executives find the pressure of Zoom to be hard to bear, according to Peter Rabar, a New York-based lawyer who specializes in employment matters. You're always on, there's no time off, and you have to assume that you could be recorded, he told the journal. In order to combat potentially damaging leaks, last month, Zoom introduced a new feature that allows an account owner or administrator to watermark a video with a viewer's email address. Employees at Better.com said they noticed email watermarks on their corporate Zoom calls, but a spokesperson for the company denied that it did this in order to stop viral videos. Better.com's CEO, it should be noted, had his moment in the sun in 2021 when he summarily fired 900 employees on a video call. Regardless of whether you are broadcasting a message to employees over Zoom or talking to them one-on-one, there is probably never a good time to tell someone who works for you that it is unfair of them to take care of their children while they are supposed to be working, as James Clark, CEO of ClearLink, a Utah marketing firm, did this week. Bill McGowan, founder and CEO of Clarity Media Group, a communications coach, remarked to the journal, these are real human beings you need to connect with. Still, that seems to be a very hard and expensive lesson for many CEOs to learn. Up next, Connie wonders whether we should be paid for all of our contributions to AI. But first, a word from our sponsor. Now, more than ever, startups are looking for the safest place to put their cash. Mercury offers secure banking through an intuitive product experience that innovates alongside you. Through partner banks and their sweep networks, Mercury customers can access up to $5 million in FDIC insurance, 20 times the per-bank limit. These sweep networks protect your deposits by spreading them across multiple banks, limiting the risk of any single point of failure. And with Mercury Vault, any funds above the FDIC-insured amount can be easily invested in a money market fund predominantly composed of U.S. government-backed securities, providing startups of any size a simple way to manage bank risk and protect their cash. Plus, it's simple to get started. Applying takes just minutes, and many customers are approved and onboarded in less than two hours. Visit Mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances. Mercury is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group and Evolve Bank and Trust, members FDIC. In Silicon Valley, some of the brightest minds believe a universal basic income, UBI, that guarantees people unrestricted cash payments will help them to survive and thrive as advanced technologies eliminate more careers as we know them. From white-collar and creative jobs, think lawyers, journalists, artists, and software engineers, to labor roles. The idea has gained enough traction that dozens of guaranteed income programs have been started in U.S. cities since 2020. Yet even Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI and one of the highest profile proponents of UBI, doesn't believe that it's a complete solution. As he said during our sit-down earlier this year, 
UBI, I think UBI is good and important, but uh, very far from sufficient. I think it is like a little part of the solution. Uh, I think it's great. Like I think we should, as AGI participates more and more in the economy, I think we should distribute wealth and, and resources much more than, than we have. Um, and that'll be important over time. But I don't, I don't think that's going to like solve the problem. I don't think that's going to give people meaning. I don't think it means people are going to like entirely stop trying to create and do new things and whatever else. So I sort of would consider it like an enabling technology, but not like a plan for society. The question begged is what a plan for society should then look like. And computer scientist Jerome Lanier, a founder in the field of virtual reality, writes in this week's New Yorker that, quote, data dignity could be an even bigger part of the solution. Here's the basic premise. Right now, we mostly give our data for free in exchange for free services. Lanier argues that in the age of AI, we need to stop doing this that the powerful models currently working their way into society need instead to, quote, be connected with the humans who give them so much to ingest and learn from in the first place. The idea is for people to, quote, get paid what they create, even when it's filtered and recombined, end quote, into something that's unrecognizable. The concept isn't brand new, with Lanier first introducing the notion of data dignity in a 2018 Harvard Business Review piece titled A Blueprint for a Better Digital Society. As he wrote at the time with co-author and economist Glenn Weil, rhetoric from the tech sector suggests a coming wave of underemployment due to artificial intelligence and automation. But the predictions of UBI advocates leave room for only two outcomes, and they're extreme linear and Weil observed. Either, they said, there will be mass poverty despite technological advances, or much wealth will have to be taken under central national control through a social wealth fund to provide citizens a universal basic income. The problem is that both hyper-concentrate power and undermine or ignore the value of data creators, they wrote. Of course, assigning people the right amount of credit for their countless contributions to everything that exists online is not a minor challenge. Lanier acknowledges that even data dignity researchers can't agree on how to disentangle everything that AI models have absorbed or how detailed an accounting should be attempted. Still, he thinks it could be done gradually. As he writes in The New Yorker, the system wouldn't necessarily account for the billions of people who've made ambient contributions to big models, but starting with a small number of special contributors, over time, more people might be included and start to play a role. Alas, even if there is a will, a more immediate challenge, lack of access, looms. Though OpenAI had released some of its training data in previous years, it has since closed the kimono completely. When OpenAI president Greg Brockman described a TechCrunch last month, the training data for OpenAI's latest and most powerful language model, GPT-4, he said it derived from a variety of licensed, created, and publicly available data sources, which may include publicly available personal information. But he declined to offer anything more specific. There's too much downside for the outfit in revealing more than it does, OpenAI stated in a report upon GPT-4's release. Quote, given both the competitive landscape and the safety implications of large-scale models like GPT-4, this report contains no further details about the architecture, including model size, hardware, training compute, dataset construction, training method, or similar. Unsurprisingly, regulators are grappling with what to do. 
OpenAI, whose technology in particular is spreading like wildfire, is already in the crosshairs of a growing number of countries, including the Italian Authority, which has blocked the use of its popular ChatGPT chatbot. French, German, Irish, and Canadian data regulators are also investigating how the company collects and uses data. But as Margaret Mitchell, an AI researcher who was formerly Google's AI ethics co-lead, tells the outlet Technology Review, it might be nearly impossible at this point for these companies to identify individuals' data and to remove it from their models. As explained by the outlet, OpenAI would be better off today if it had built in data record keeping from the start, but it's standard in the AI industry to build data sets for AI models by scraping the web indiscriminately and then outsourcing some of the cleanup of that data. If these players truly have a limited understanding of what's now in their models, that's a pretty big challenge to the data dignity proposal of Lanier. Whether it renders the idea impossible is something only time will tell. Certainly, there is merit in determining a way to give people ownership over their work, even if it's made outwardly other by the likes of GPT-4. It's also highly likely that frustration over who owns what will grow as more of the world is reshaped with these new tools. Already, OpenAI and others are facing numerous and wide-ranging copyright infringement lawsuits over whether or not they have the right to scrape the entire internet to feed their algorithms. But it's not just about giving credit where it's due. Recognizing people's contribution to AI systems may be necessary to preserve humans' sanity over time, suggests Lanier in his fascinating New Yorker piece. People need agency, and as he sees it, universal basic income amounts to putting everyone on the dole in order to preserve the idea of black box artificial intelligence. Meanwhile, ending the black box nature of our current AI models would make an accounting of people's contributions easier, which might make them far more likely to continue making contributions. It might all boil down to establishing a new creative class instead of a new dependent class, he writes. And which would you prefer to be a part of? Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here next week.